So I spend a lot of time on articulating the why, because I think if people see how their role fits into the why, they're much more open to embracing change and driving things forward. Welcome to the Business Class Podcast, where we dive into conversations with alumni, students, faculty, and staff from the University of Dayton School of Business Administration. You'll hear career advice, conversations about ethical decision-making in business, and listen to stories from life on the UD campus. Here's your host, Dean Trevor Collier. Hello, and welcome to the Business Class Podcast. Today, we are joined by 1993 UD School of Business graduate, Steve Shute. Steve currently serves as the president of Worldwide Field Operations at DocuSign, a leading digital agreement company. Thanks for joining me today, Steve. Dean Collier, thank you for having me. I'd like to start our conversation talking about your current role at DocuSign, then maybe we can go back to your time at UD and talk a little bit about your first role out of college at PwC, following your career up to today. Sounds good. You want to start with DocuSign? Yeah, so I think most people have some exposure to, to DocuSign. I know I've used the technology multiple times to digitally sign off on contracts and other agreements. Could you tell us a little something about the company maybe a general audience might not know? Yeah, well, I'll start with my role. So I did join here about a year ago, um, three weeks shy of a year. Feels like dog years. It's kind of in some ways flying by, some ways not. Um, and I came in to, to run our field operations organization, as I mentioned. And it's roughly approximately half the company. So it's pretty much all the customer-facing activities of DocuSign. As you mentioned, everyone, for the most part, is familiar with DocuSign, at least in North America. Uh, we get about 1.3 million customers out there. Uh, ranging from individual contributors all the way to the largest companies in the world using DocuSign. And so my organization has the industry teams, the pre-sales teams who demo the software, the sales teams, uh, services organizations, but and also the customer success team. And these are the individuals that go in after sale and help customers realize the value of the software that they've developed in DocuSign. Uh, it's roughly a little over 3,000 people. Again, it's global in nature. And uh, that's the role that I came in to do. And I'm a direct report into our CEO. And uh, it's been a great year so far. And, and you mentioned something else that many people think about DocuSign in the context of e-signature. But we're really broadening that out. And part of the reason why I was brought in is really help give a bigger value prop and mission for the company and vision along with our CEO. And when you think about agreements in an organization, you know, first of all, our, our vision is really to help redefine how the world comes together and agrees. And we're trying to help them do that through smarter, easier, and more trusted agreements inside the organization, but also the agreements that flow outside the organization. If you think about agreements, they're in every major process of a company. In the front office, you've got agreements with your customers in systems like Salesforce. In the back office, you have agreements with um, applications like Hire to Retire for uh, success factors and workday, procure to pay, you have Ariba, Coupa, you have financial, you have Oracle, and you have SAP. You've got agreements all in these processes. And, and DocuSign can help you actually create the agreement automatically. It can help you identify who's do, doing the agreement. It can help you um, review and negotiate as it goes back and forth. Obviously, sign it, but then ultimately manage that agreement. And when you think about the data in those agreements, at the end of the day, DocuSign is going to be a lot about the data in the agreements, extracting the data out, the metadata, and applying analytics and AI to help companies run more efficiently 
more effectively and more grain, and also providing a better experience for the for the internal users, but ultimately your end customers as well. So, Steve, when I've used it, it, it's been pretty simple, right? Somebody, there's a contract that we've mostly agreed to. They send it to me. I, you know, add my digital signature and it goes back. Can you tell me a little more how, from the process side, does it, does it help as you're, as you're building and negotiating a contract? Well, the first thing you do is, is you have to create the agreement. So we have some companies that are generating $2 million plus documents through Salesforce, for example, to customize an agreement for their end customer. Uh, the next step of the process, I have to know, Dean Collier, who you are, uh, especially in, the, in, in Europe. Uh, they're, they're very strict upon making sure that the parties that are signing are verified. So we have technology to help verify the identification of who you are. Uh, and then, of course, we have the ability to, to help you review and negotiate that agreement back and forth. There are certain clauses in the contract, for example, that maybe a party doesn't like. We can make recommendations on a, the use of another clause. Um, and ultimately signing it and then managing it. That's awesome. I, I didn't I didn't know about the full suite of, of possibilities there. Well, in fairness, that's part of the reason we have to get this message more broadly out there. Yeah. Uh, because if we're not careful, people do think of us only as e-sig and we're much more than that. Um, I came from a companies that were very complex in nature. And what I'm finding is uh, the agreements are kind of the next big area. The customers have the ability to really do something differently around the agreement process itself. And again, most people think about if they digitize the agreement, all they did was take a paper-based contract and they put it in PDF format. Without, they're not really taking advantage of the data in the contract. As you mentioned, you, you just started working there about a year ago, maybe just under a year ago. So the, the role is fairly new to you. What are some of the challenges you've experienced transitioning into this role and, and maybe what excites you most about the opportunity? Well, I think it's the first time we pulled together all those different divisions of the company under one leader. And I think it was a smart thing to do because we really want to make sure that everybody throughout the organization is customer obsessed. That's one of my priorities. I really want to focus on the end result our customers expect to get out of the software they buy. I often joke that and people are kind of shocked when I say it, but nobody wants to buy what you're selling. And the quicker you understand that, the better off you're going to be. What they're looking for is capabilities and ultimately outcomes that you can help bring to bear they can't do today, right? Get more automated, be more efficient, be more effective, drive a superior experience, be greener. And if you can do that, you'll be in good shape. So first and foremost, I've got to get everyone in the organization having that customer obsession as a mantra. And more than a mantra, active in their daily life and everything they do. Uh, the second thing is, after you sell the software, again, the value to a customer is actually adopting, consuming, and getting those benefits. So we're making big investments after sale. One of the first hires I made was a chief customer officer who was, who was really looking at our customers after sale to make sure, sure they're getting the benefit from that software. So the value realization is front and center for me as well. So the biggest challenge is bringing all these parts together and aligning, aligning roles and responsibilities around the, the life cycle of a, of a customer's journey and make sure the handoffs are clean. I was just talking to an, another UD School Business alum that, that's focused on the marketing side of a, of a different business, but they were saying today the, the buyers are, are a little different than the buyers of 
maybe 20 years ago where you, you 20 years ago, a salesperson would go in and they would, they would introduce the product or the service to the customer. And that would be the first time the customer heard about it. They'd think about it. Right. And then they'd start developing that relationship to try to make the sale. And this, this alum was saying today, many of the buyers are, are digital natives and they don't want to be, they don't want to have a person introduce them to a product. They want to introduce themselves to the product online and read about it and learn about it before they'll ever take a meeting with a salesperson. Is that something that you all are experiencing? Absolutely. I think that's, I think that's actually a very astute observation. And one of the, one of the three pronged approach to our go-to-market, we have the direct sales teams. We have our ecosystem with our partners, whether they're reselling our software, uh, integrating our software for customers as two types of uh, partners, uh, but also what we have what we have a notion called product-led growth, and that's a term in Silicon Valley meant to really have your website be enhanced for self-service. That customers can go learn about the product, even procure the product right there, uh, which we can, we have that capability today. But really putting that on steroids going forward, because most users do go to the website first to see what's this, to the search engine, or to go to the website as well to see what's going on. And I, I imagine all of the different functions that are rolled up under you, that makes that process a little bit easier now. Well, they go hand in hand. So the, the, our um, president of growth who also runs our marketing organization, he's actually responsible for that online experience for the customer. But he and I are working hand in hand. Um, as you enter certain markets, or you're dealing with a certain size customer, we're definitely going to the website first. But the goal is to nurture those customers from a buying experience and maybe small volume into a higher, more strategic relationship over time from just inside sales to ultimately either through our partners or ultimately through our direct sellers. Let's go back in time to your days when you were at UD. Can you think back to maybe when you were a high school student? How did you, how did you find UD and what led you to enroll at the University of Dayton? Well, I never thought there'd be a day when the dean was younger than me. So, <laughs> so <laughs> I've got to tell you, uh, the time does go by quickly. Um, I, I guess, you know, I, I went to an Augustinian prep school out east. And as you know, there's a lot of East Coast people that go to Dayton. I think there's a fallacy that it's a Midwest-only school, when in fact it's got a great representation nationally and, and, and internationally. Yeah. Um, so my prep school was a feeder to Villanova. And both my older brothers went to Villanova. Um, my mom went to St. Joe's. But my dad was a Dayton alumni. So my dad graduated in class of 62. And uh, so he had a great experience there. And he, he really wanted me to see things beyond the East Coast. We went to visit it. And uh, I loved it. And the rest is uh, history. I, I can't tell you how many alums I meet that are either the son or daughter of an alum or they have a son or a daughter who, who went to UD. And I, I, I tend to joke with, with the alums that I um, – I measure your, your parenting ability by whether you can get your kids to go to UD. <laughs> um, okay. So you, you come here, you, you know, well, one other funny fact went to my dad when I graduated, my dad was super proud of me becoming a flyer. Like he's, sure. a, he's a diehard flyer. Uh, he went there to play basketball and baseball. Okay. Uh, I think he did one or two years, but, but his proudest moment was when I graduated and together, he reminds me together, we had a 3.0. <laughs> and as I say, I wanted to make my firm three, five was a requirement. So I'm not throwing any jabs at my dad, but he's proud of the 3-0 together. You, you raised that average, huh? Uh, 
I'm, I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> when was the last time you've been to campus, Steve? Uh, one of my, so two of my closest friends are my housemates from Dayton. Okay. And uh, we still talk weekly. One of the, one of the gentlemen handles my, um, advised me on financial matters. The other guy I talked to was every day. And uh, the one gentleman turned 50. Actually, his sons are going to uh, Dayton right now. I won't say their names, but you probably know both the sons. We'll, and, we'll talk uh, offline. <laughs> we'll talk offline. And uh, so he, I went back for his 50th birthday party about a year ago. Okay, fantastic. So, you know, campus has has grown both in, a, in its footprint and in, in honestly, the, the cosmetic uh, look of, of campus. What, what do you find most appealing and what do you miss? Uh, what, do you, what do you find most appealing about the new campus and what do you miss about the old campus? I think I, there's not much I miss about the old campus. I, I think the new campus, the, what I love, what I loved was when you took over NCR, which I spent a lot of time in that building. My first job, I'll get to that in a moment, was at Cooper's and Library with uh, your buddy Rick Stover. Yeah. And I spent a lot of time in that building when NCR was being spun off from AT&T. Uh, so part of me was a little nostalgic when I saw that go away. But but I saw the way that all the buildings were incorporated and really blended together, like they were all built together. So architecturally, I really liked it. I loved the the the, the uh, landscaping that was done. A lot of places where students would get together and gather. And that's what made UD special was the ability to really get together, not just in the classroom, but but outside the classroom with with your colleagues to really enjoy the enjoy the day, learn from each other. It was a lot of fun. It's uh, we've got a really nice community is, you know, that's the word we, we like to use, but I think it really helps our students to, to socialize and learn how to work on a team. And so when, when our students graduate, they, in today's environment, right, most, most of the business functions you're, you're working on a team and employers are, are just really surprised at how well our students can quickly jump into that, that team atmosphere they're not worried about themselves. They're worried about the, the collective good and, and trying to have success for, for the team and for the company. Uh, and, and they ask me, you know, what, what do you do to cultivate that? And I said, you know, we do teamwork and different projects in the classroom, but really I, I think it's just part of the culture. It's part of the DNA at UD. Well, you know, I, I went back with my wife for that birthday party and even she couldn't believe how friendly all the students were. You're walking up and down the streets of the ghetto and folks are offering to come up and have a beer with them and, this your old house, come in and check it out. So I was really impressed by the quality of uh, students that are, that are there. Uh, and also the, the, not only the academic strength, but, but to your point about dealing with other people, interpersonal communication skills are paramount in any business you go into. And, and they, get that, they get that in spades in, in the student neighborhood. And so you mentioned, you mentioned the houses in the student neighborhood and many of our alumni tend to identify with with a house or a street on campus when, when you think back to your days is there a specific house or street that brings back fond memories for you uh there are two at uh, 60 chambers and uh it was uh it was an interesting experience with eight young men living together for the first time uh, in a house with no supervision uh, that was a lot of fun and then uh we were at 454 key favor which is a great block of key favor uh, senior year, we're out, we're out for campus. So they were two, uh, two great houses. Yeah. I, when I ask this question, I tend to get key favor, Lowe's stone mill. Uh, you know, that, that, that area is where the students tend to want to be. And they end up at Tim's either way. 
Just a little bit, just a little bit. <laughs> if you had one meal on or near campus, where would you eat? Pine Club. When you were in school? Uh, no, uh, no. I couldn't afford the Pine Club when I was in Calvis. That's a fair, fair point. Uh, the, there used to be Papa Milano's. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's still there, but Papa Milano's was great. Uh, or BW3s. Yeah. So th- th- this, I tend to ask this question to, on most of my podcast guests and it's become a commercial for for pine club and milanos uh that, that's typically the answer is today when i come back i go to pine club and when i was when i was a student it was it was milanos although i don't know if you saw the milanos when you're here it's a it's a whole new building it's uh it, it, it's very very different it's a big bar i liked it <laughs> do you have any good stories from your time at ud either uh, when you were on key Faber or chambers that you'd be willing to share with the public audience remember your family could be listening to this you know, I think I think my favorite memory was uh, it was part of UD, but not at UD. I, I actually studied with the first group of uh, students over at Augsburg. Oh, wow. So Professor, Professor Burroughs put that together last minute. And there were 20 students that from business got a chance to go study in Germany uh, for a summer between our junior and senior year, at least my junior and senior year. And just had a great experience. I, I'd been to Europe one time before that. Uh, and that was just a really great experience. That still occurs today. Yep. Uh, that we, we've got summer study abroad programs. Typically, we do one in Rome, one in London, Dublin, one in Augsburg almost every year. Uh, it's pretty regularly. There's one in Spain. This summer, we have one in Japan. Next summer, I believe they're building one for Ecuador, trying to trying to get some presence in South America. So yeah, we, we do a fair number of of summer study abroad programs, but that was probably at the very beginning of, of that being part of the school business. Well, and that, that led to me, I've been over to, I've been in over 50 countries now, as you and I were talking before the podcast, I do a lot of traveling for work, uh, but also pleasure. And that kind of opened my eyes up to the world outside the U.S. to, to really get a chance to learn from different cultures and uh, experience it as well. I talked, I've talked a lot with my dad about this because there, I did a study abroad in London, um, my junior year of college. And some of my classmates uh, will just say they didn't really take advantage of London. Um, But, you know, they had a good time, but they didn't really take advantage of London. I was talking to my dad about it. And I said, how upset would you be if I had just come over here and not, not seen the sights and tried to experience the culture? And he said, honestly, I wouldn't care because you're, you're learning that you can leave the country and you can visit different cultures and you're getting a familiarity with travel and hopefully you'll continue to do that. And, and, you know, that sort of instilled a love of that for me. I, I don't travel nearly as much as you do, but I I've taught study abroad programs for UD and in, in, in London and in Rome and um, you know, traveled around a lot more than I probably would have if, if I hadn't done that in college, you know, I know a lot of people who've never left the country and if you do it at a young age, it sort of opens that door for you and you're comfortable doing it again when you get older. Yeah, and I think you learn this best practice everywhere and there's good people everywhere. But the good people do things differently. It doesn't make it right or wrong. Yeah. So if you're, if you're in a certain country like Italy, you have an end goal. How you get there is very different from how you get there in Germany. So understanding culturally how they work, how they think. Uh, but again, knowing that they're good people, leading them from where they are to where you need them to be in a way they can digest it and also embrace it. It's important. Do you have 
when you think back to your time at UD, are there any, any courses or professors that really stick out to you that had an impact on your life? Well, I think Professor Burroughs, I mentioned the studying abroad, but Professor Burroughs had a very big impact on my life. He, uh, you know, if you look at my high school yearbook, uh, I was fortunate enough to know that I wanted to become a corporate executive. Uh, it didn't say anything cool like astronaut or fireman, nothing cool. It was corporate executive. Um, and my dad said, well, go learn the numbers. That's what we want to do. And uh, Dr. Burroughs was very thoughtful with me about getting an accounting background, even though he knew I'd probably never use it for more than a couple of years, um, which I did. But it was really good foundational um, business experience, maybe business learning to understand how the P&L works. And uh, he was great about just really helping mentor me along. So that was terrific. For those of you who don't know Dr. Burroughs, he's an accounting professor and longtime chair of, of the accounting department. I, I imagine there's a number of listeners who would that, that would be their answer to this question as well. If, if you came out of the accounting department at UD uh, over, I don't know, a 25 year period, you probably knew Ron Burroughs and, and he probably helped you uh, get started in your career. You know, it's interesting. You, you, you kind of knew coming out of high school that you wanted to be a, a corporate exec. We, we have a lot of students who will go into uh, public accounting and then change their mind. Um, but it's interesting. You went into it kind of already knowing that was a, that was a, a stepping stone. So I did the public accounting thing with Coopers and Libran for about a little over three years. Our, my friend Rick Stover, I think also was an adjunct professor at Dayton after he retired from what is now PricewaterhouseCoopers. Rick actually hired me into my first job. So I got a lot of fondness and respect for Rick as well. Uh, but yeah, I, I did that for a couple of years and I thought about my career in building blocks. And the 20s to me was about formal education. It was getting my CPA, getting my MBA, uh, getting all the, obviously undergraduate, getting all the degrees done. My, my 30s was about skill set building. It was about getting the right jobs and experiences. So by my 40s, I could be a senior executive. And my 50s, which I'm in now, is about having fun and, and, and having an impact. I mean, of course, I, I wanted to have an impact in every job that I had, uh, but now I get to have a really big impact, which is great. So Rick, he was an adjunct here for a while, then he retired, and then he, he actually taught full-time uh, in, in the accounting department for a while. And so I, I got to know him. We were, we were both faculty for a couple of years. And when I stepped into this role, he was one of the first people that I reached out to because he's, he's sort of a, an institution of, of, of Dayton, Ohio. You know, every, he, he knows everybody. Everybody knows Rick. And I, I said, Rick, as I step into this role, you know, who are the, who are the business leaders that I need to that I need to meet with around Dayton to, you know, connect the school business with with them and their company. And he gave me like a five page list. <laughs> he broke it down into different industries, and he had all this stuff. And and then he I didn't ask him for this, but then he then he listed off a number of, of alumni that he thought I should meet with, and, and you were you were on that list uh, of, of people that I should go meet with. He's a great guy. Really like really like Rick. Um, so. You started off at what, what is now PwC. You went back and got an MBA and then pivoted into a sales and marketing role at, at IBM. What kind of drove that going to, going to grad school and then the, the shift in, in, in your function? Well, it was interesting because I really had not thought about going into technology. I thought about going into sales. And uh, coming out of business school, most people were going into the consulting firms, into back into the SI firms. Um, I knew I didn't want that. 
And when I thought about selling and I, and I got a chance to see what was going on at IBM, this was the time that Lou Gerson was really transforming IBM. Uh, culturally, I never saw myself fitting in at IBM. It was too stodgy. Uh, but when I got there, it wasn't. He, he had done a great job of radically shifting the mindset of the employees and ultimately being very successful in the market. So I went there to, to, to carry a bag. And within uh, over the course of 14 years, I had nine different jobs. And they kept rotating me around the company, giving me different experiences. Uh, I ran a $10 billion division for marketing for a while. I lived overseas in Zurich, Switzerland, when my youngest son was born. Uh, so I really got a chance to uh, have a bunch of different experiences under one, one, one house. We just hosted IBM's chief financial officer, Jim Cavanaugh, on campus last fall. Um, and and it, was, it was really interesting to, to hear from him and, and get kind of an inside look at, at IBM. And he talks a lot about, um, you know, he was at NCR, AT&T here in Dayton before leaving to go to go to IBM. And, you know, you, you stay there so long, right? He, I, I forget the, the, what do they call it? Big blue. Yes. Right. So he, you know, he, he bleeds big blue, right? He's, he's, he's in, what was your, you know, you talked about it being stodgy, but the, the culture was maybe changing. Um, I, I imagine for you, moving around into those different roles was extremely valuable in, in your progression and desire to get into being a corporate executive. Um, but what was the, what was the culture like over 14 years? Uh, it changed a lot, you know, cause we had another CEO come in. So every, every culture goes through ebbs and flows throughout the years. Uh, great company, great people, very ethical, great business partner of DocuSign. Uh, I actually got a chance to meet Jim, um, when he was CFO at IBM, my last company was SAP. Okay. And SAP and IBM have a very large uh, partnership. Um, so I got to meet Jim, very nice guy. Uh, for, for me, I left because, again, I was thinking back on my plan. 20s, I mentioned, was about formal education. 30s was skill set building. 40s, I, I had a family by this time. I got to start making some more money. Uh, monetization was part of that. Uh, now I'm in my 50s. But when I turned 40, I looked at my plan and I was starting to fall off my personal plan, what I wanted. I was a senior executive this time at IBM. I made it by 35, which was unusual. Um, but I got an opportunity to work for a, a well-known entrepreneur uh, here in Chicago and kind of use a different side of my brain. So I went from knowing the numbers, working for a very large company with, at the time, 425,000 people, uh, and then working for an entrepreneur here in Chicago. I did that for a couple of years, and he told me how to use a different side of my brain. It was just different from what you learn in a book. It was different from what you learn at a big company. It was always a yes-if mentality versus a no-but. And he just knew how to get things done. So I worked for him for a couple of years. Uh, he ended up leaving the firm uh, as things happened. Uh, and I ended up, uh, this was my first Section 16 officer job, publicly traded company. I ended up leaving there to go to SAP. And I had a great eight-year run at SAP. Uh, I became, I was uh, an MD when I first started, became chief operating officer for North America, became chief operating officer for all the customer success organization. And ultimately, well, my last job, I was president of the global sales teams. And I did the go-to-market for how the 40,000 customer-facing people at SAP, how they looked in front of the customer. So really great experiences. But again, I wanted to keep on my path. And uh, DocuSign presented an opportunity for me 
uh, to get to a, a very uh, more medium-sized company, we can move very quickly. I want to come back to your career progression because I, I think there's more we could dig in there and, and help some of our, our current students or our young alumni that might be listening to this uh, with some career advice. But you, you mentioned IBM being a, an ethical company. You know, if you, if you think back to your days at, at UD, you know, we're a, we're a Catholic Marianist school. Uh, ethical values play a, a, a big role in, in what we're trying to instill in our students. Are, are there any decisions or um, challenges you faced in, in your in your career where you were able to kind of rely on some of the the Marianist foundations that you learned here at UD or, or in your uh, Augustinian high school? Yeah, I, I think that well, there are three A's I look for in people. I look for um, their attitude. Is it a can, yes, if attitude now versus a no but? I look for their aptitude to want to continuously learn. If you think you're the smartest person in the room, you're definitely not. Because you should be looking to learn from everyone inside the company, external sources, constantly pushing yourself. Uh, to, to further benefit yourself by learning. Um, but then lastly, the activities. What, what do you do when you wake up in the morning? How do you approach the day, the week, the month, the year? Uh, ethics, though, it's got to be foundational for me. If you don't have ethics, nothing matters. So to me, if I sense any kind of uh, integrity issues or ethical issues, I always have a saying, I don't look good in orange, uh, let alone being the wrong, th wrong thing to do. Uh, and I think the Catholic Foundation are really prepares you to think about what is what is not just legal, but what is right and wrong, because there is a difference. Plenty of things that are illegal that you may know is not the right thing to do. I was just talking to a local business leader, and, and he said when he's hiring, he looks for people who are comfortable in the gray space, meaning, right, everything's not black and white. You've got difficult decisions, and, and can they, you know, think through those complicated and, and not just rely on a specific rule of thumb that we always do this. Well, there's always an exception to the rule and, and how do people handle that? And I think some of that is at play when you, when you talk about ethical, moral, or right or wrong, it's different than, than what's legal. Legal is easy, right? That's black and white. It, it's, it's that area that gets a little murky. You start to feel a little uncomfortable and, and how do you, how do you handle that? What do you do? Well, I think you stay true to yourself. And if the, if the company you're working for doesn't adhere to the same values you have, you're probably working with the wrong company. So I, I've had situations, I won't go into detail, uh, where I, I disagreed with a person running the show. And I think I thought it was the wrong thing to do. And I wasn't comfortable. And they had a choice. And we made the right choice. That's, uh, that's fantastic to hear. And that's, you know, that's something we hope our, we're preparing our students to be able to make that same, that same decision. When they when they face those difficult challenges, you, you mentioned looking at at people's activities. Uh, I'm curious, what do you, what do you do when you get up in the morning? What's what's your what's the start of your day look like? Well, the first thing I think about is is if I'm identifying something, whether it's a new relationship, a new customer, something new. If I'm progressing something, or if I'm closing something, and, and I think about the fact that so many hours on a calendar are wasted with non-value activities. So anytime I get a new job and somebody takes a job that I had before, the first thing I encourage them to do is take my calendar and question every call that I have. And I'm doing that for the next job I, I roll into. Is, is that call valuable? Are we identifying something together, progressing something together, 
or closing something together. And if you're not doing one of those three things, um, ask yourself how you're spending your time, right? And it can be identifying a new cause to give back to with the company, right? A new relationship to develop. But those are the kind of parameters that I use. And I, and I think about, you know, there are three things I look at when I run the business. And I've done this throughout my career. I look at the organization financially, which is the point in time that's this week, this month, this quarter, this half, this year. I look at it strategically. In my business, that's about 24 to 36 months out. Anybody in technology that tells you they can see further than that, I'd like to, like to meet them. And then organizationally, um, the people and the processes, how do they map up to those other two buckets? So I'm spending my time in those three areas. Uh, and at a given point in time, sometimes I got to focus more on the financials. Sometimes you got to focus more on the people. So you're finding yourself based on the situation, adjusting where you spend your time. So when you think about this new role in those three buckets, where have you spent most of your time so far? Organizationally. So really, really getting the alignment of our thousands of people in such a way that we best serve our customer and ultimately, ultimately provide for a better employee experience so they can do their jobs more efficiently, effectively, make more money and have more fun and really feel like they have a purpose at work. Yeah, I, when I took this role, if you would have asked me where I was going to spend my time, I, I would have been woefully inaccurate. Um, we, I'm, I'm almost two years in now, if you count my time as an interim dean, and there's, there's 12 people in the dean's office, 11 of us started within the last two years. So that's a, that's a lot of hiring. That's a lot of sort of building up the, court, the culture. Now, thankfully, a vast majority of those were already at the institution before that. They're just moving into new roles in the dean's office, but it, it, it's fun and exciting to have a new group of people. Uh, I imagine it's, it's fun for your team to have a new leader, um, but it, it takes a lot, of, a lot of learning and trying to figure out where you can push change uh, that people are willing to go along with you and where you maybe need to move a little slower because people aren't yet comfortable. So we, we like many tech, tech companies, have had a lot of change over the last 24 months. DocuSign's a company that was sky high during the pandemic. Uh, and like many tech companies, evaluations kind of came down. Anytime you have that, you're dealing with a, a number of issues that you have to face. As you know, uh, change is the one constant we have in life. Uh, but how you handle the change, I feel like the older you get, the more experience you have, you handle it very differently. Uh, but my advice on that is at the end of the day, it comes down to people working together to solve problems and take advantage of opportunities together. So part, part of what you need to drive in the change management is not just the what people need to do or, or how they need to do it, but why they need to do it. So I spend a lot of time on articulating the why, because I think if people see how their role fits into the why, they're much more open to embracing change and driving things forward. Okay, let's, let's come back to the advice. So you, you were sharing about your career moves, uh, sort of in your having sort of different, different goals in your 20s, 30s, 40s. What advice would you give to our current students or our younger alums as they're getting started in their careers? Well, I, I definitely, I definitely think uh, having a plan helps. You don't have to have all the answers. One, one of the things I talk to younger uh, students about, or younger professionals, is most people don't have, with one hundred percent accuracy, what they want to do. But I didn't know I wanted to go into tech. I kind of fell into tech. Not a bad place to fall into. Um, 
but I, but I think, so what you have to do is have a plan for your career, a framework that you want to operate in and why that's important. Uh, I got offered some jobs when I was at IBM that paid a lot more money. And I actually turned them down. And I'm convinced had I gone for the short-term money, I, I wouldn't have had the, the last couple of executive jobs I was competitive for because I wouldn't have had the experience I needed. And by the way, there's no wrong answer. For some people, it could be to take the higher paying job when you're 30. But you have to keep a framework that you're true to. I, I love Pitbull. You ever listen to Pitbull talk? No. He had a plan for every year. And I actually wrote a couple down. He had 2009 was about freedom. 2010, he called invasion. 2011 was building his empire. 2012 was growing his wealth. 2013 was pu putting his puzzle together. 2014 was buckle up. And 2015 was make history. So he, he's been a very successful performer. But if anyone thinks it just happened by chance, has not heard him speak. So my, my encouragement is to have a plan. Well, Steve, is there anything else you want to share with me or any questions you have for me? Well, I, I think, you know, going back to the, the Catholic faith, thing, I think one of the most important decisions is who you marry. And uh, I've been married for uh, 22 years now. And, it, you know, the life starts at home. With your, you have two boys. One's a freshman at um, Indiana and one's a junior in, um, in high school. So you got, but, you, got, you got one chance left, Steve. I told you, you I, I'll judge our alums by their success with their students. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, but, but I think it's really important. That that's probably the most important decision one of them that you're going to make. Uh, and again, trust that Catholic faith that you were raised with. I think uh, the other thing, I got a question for you, is you know, every generation of worker is really dramatically different, whether they're a baby boomer generation, uh, I'm part of the generation X, which clearly is the best. Uh, I'm kidding. You have the millennials and then you have the generation Z. And what advice have you, do you have for employers dealing with the different generations that are coming into the workforce or still either in or coming in? I think, you know, we're, we're seeing Generation Z now and, and they're, they're different from millennials, but there's, there's some similarities there. So I, I haven't figured out all the things with, with Generation Z, but I, I would say definitely with the, the millennial generation, and I think this will carry over into Generation Z, is they're looking for purpose more than they're looking for a specific achievement of, of where they end up in the company or a specific amount of money that they're going to make. That's not true of all students. That's, that's clearly a, a, a gross generalization. But on average, I think they care more that, that they are feeling valued in their company more than the, the generations before them that were just, just wanted a paycheck or you know, just wanted to succeed. So that, that's something I see very, very commonly. And, and it, you know, it's, it's in the news. I'm sure you've seen it with, with some, of your, some of your employees. Um, that comes with, I think, some, some advantages that if you can show them how that your, your company, your culture is going to help them make the world a better place or help, help them do something that, that improves people's lives. I think they buy in, you know, really strong and, and they're, and they're willing to, to commit. Um, but I think if they can't find that they're, they're going to, they're going to move on pretty quickly. I would, I would agree with that. It's interesting as I travel around to different locations around the globe, whether it's my last company or the current company, um, 
it's interesting because it, each generation, the, the one constant was the younger generations. If they don't have a purpose, they tend to leave within two to four years. Uh, and that's when you make the investment in them to be very valuable. To the, they're always valuable, but they're most productive after you know two to three years in the company. And giving them that purpose is something that we're heavily focused on here at DocuSign. Well, Steve, I really appreciate you taking time to, to chat with me today. I hope we get to chat again soon. I hope you come to campus. Let us show you our, our Center for Professional Selling. And uh, you, like I said, we've got one more shot with your youngest. I, I hope I hope, I hope uh, he'll take a visit and let us show him what we're doing here. That'd be great. With Dean Kelly, thank you so much for having me. Well, thank Go you. Wise. And thanks to our listeners. I hope you all will join us again on the next Business Class Podcast. Go Flyers. Thanks for joining us for the Business Class Podcast. If you'd like to engage with us further, please follow us on social media. Our Instagram and Facebook accounts all use the name SBA. You can also email the Dean's Office with questions or suggestions for future podcasts at sbadean at udayton.edu. No matter where you are on your career path, we are proud that you're part of our Dayton Flyer family.